Today's episode is with Melanie Bennett. This interview first ran in January of last year. It's about Melanie's experience growing up on the Dempster Highway, which, if you know anything about this remote stretch of road, is rather uncommon, at least on the Yukon side. I hope you enjoy. Happy New Year, and I'll have a new episode for you in two weeks. This is Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. We share a more in-depth take on the most popular stories from our print magazine, showcasing the territory's extraordinary people, culture, and outdoors. I'm your host, Karen McCall. The Dempster Highway is a long gravel road. It originates near Dawson City, Yukon, and terminates in Inuvik Northwest Territories across the Arctic Circle. These days, there are few structures or services on the Yukon side of the road, apart from a territorial park visitor center and campground, and a gas station at 300 kilometers further. But for Melanie Bennett, the Dempster Highway will always be home. She grew up when the highway was being built. Her parents owned a highway lodge about 200 kilometers up the road. Melanie is Tronda Kwachen from Dawson City. She's the executive director of the Yukon First Nation Education Directorate. It was formed in 2020 to advance Yukon First Nations education. Today I'm speaking to Melanie about the lessons she learned growing up on the land and how those transpired into a career in education. All of us were born in Dawson City, uh, in my family. There's, well, I shouldn't say all of us. We're combined, a little bit of a blend. Uh, there's 12 of us in total. Uh, and for us, we were we part-time lived in Dawson, but our home starting out when I was younger was 123 miles up the Dempster Highway. My parents owned the Ogilvy River Lodge. Uh, and that was back in the day when the Dempster Highway was being built and where that location is is close to Engineer Creek. And they were putting the bridge in, so there was the army that would come in the summer and our camp that was there, which was the gas pumps and there was a cafe and it was just our world. <laughs> and the lodge catered to a lot of like the people building the highway, is that mm-hmm. right? A lot to people building the highway. Um, the highways and public works camp got built just across the um, Ogilvy River because Engineer Creek flows into Ogilvy River. And then there was, we, we all have these fun stories of different uh, biologists that came up for studies. Uh, there was the odd, well, more than the odd tourist that would come on an adventure and want to do things. Um, everyone from German, because they were, they seemed to be the most common ones that would come in the summer times. Uh, and so would this have been like in the 70s or? Yeah, it okay. was in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, the, our last year there was just shy of 1973 and it was 73 when all of the equipment was there that was pulled out and the last time I went there three years ago um, you can still just see remnants of the old well house and that's it. Right yeah, yeah. can you paint us a picture of just sort of what, what it looked like around there? Yeah we had uh, what would look like now is almost like two ATCO trailers that were side by side with a building in the middle so it kind of looked like an H and then my dad had a big shop that he would do a lot of the mechanical repairs sometimes of the trucks and it housed the generator and all that that would keep uh, the lights on Uh, and then we had a loving building that I, I, it probably has the most amount of fondest memories for me, which was near where the gas pumps were. Uh, 
Um, it used to be where my mom uh, would skin the animals and hang the furs, but it was also served as our schoolhouse. Uh, my older siblings, because I'm the youngest girl, uh, not the youngest child, I'm number 10 and 12, and there's, I have two younger brothers. Um, that's where we would do our school, so distance learning. Back then it was called correspondence. Uh, they would be doing their schooling from there. I was too young because I wasn't quite grade one age yet. Um, but my fondest memories were in that building because of uh, just the, you know, you would see the skins hanging up. My mom would um, dress the animals there, treat the furs. Uh, a lot of the beginnings of the beadwork that I do now uh, started there. Really. Wow. Yeah. And that was, um, okay, so you're at this highway camp, and there's not really, like, there's no town there. It's just your family, basically. Yeah. And then I think your grandparents also had a trap line in the yeah. end, is that right? Yeah. yeah, that my parents operated off of. So that's where the animals would come in. My dad would go out on the skidoo in the winter daily and come back, and there'd be, you know, another animal that would have to be processed. Um, it was just our way of living, right? And um, Engineer Creek, is that um, north of Treeline there or pretty, or sort of uh, You're still south of it a little bit. You're getting closer, but there's still some trees. And actually, where the campground has been moved to, because when we were there, Engineer Creek has changed a little bit of the landscape where it took out the campground that was near, because it used to be down by, right by the Ogilvy River. And the way that it has washed across, they've now moved it, the government, across the road. And uh, when I went there, I went, oh, my gosh, if my grandma saw this, she would say, why did they put it in the willows? Because <laughs> it is, it's in the willows of where the creek bed is and the overflow is. So it's probably not the best place to camp anymore because there'll be lots of bugs there. <laughs> right, yes. Uh, we were butted up against the mountain in between the two. I learned later in life, as kids, we always referred to the one mountain as Dinosaur Mountain because it looked like a big stegosaurus laying down. Um, but I now know it's called Sapper Hill, actually, on the map. I don't know what it's for. Uh, but we were in between those two, and it was just, that was our playground, right? Right, like, mm -hmm. so there was uh, 12 of you uh, children, and how did you entertain yourselves? Mm -hmm. On and off, there were 12, because some of my older siblings, um, uh, I had three sisters who had a different um mother and two sisters who had a different father so they would come at certain times and then there was seven between my mom and my dad and so those seven were always there and it was there that I know for us that was our playground and learning I can remember when the government camp was put in uh, the new bridge was built and the government camp was put in across the, the road and it was an adventure uh, to get on the one bike that we shared and go down to the government camp because the cook was really good and he was making us these cookies all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of like going to town, I guess, now. <laughs> right. Um, with our parents, there, there was things daily that I know they probably had to endure, the hardness of uh, living that remotely and maintaining things. Uh, my mom was a marvel because she would go hunting and come out uh, there's actually a picture of her still from up at Eagle Plains. Uh, she used to have the largest rack from uh, uh, taking a moose, harvesting a moose, until like a Hans. Yeah, until uh. Hans just in the more recently beat it by I think it was half an inch. Wow. So she had established that way back in the late 60s. 
um, uh, she was an uh, amazing, amazing woman who also served as our chief of our First Nation, um, but also very crack shot as well. Mm-hmm. So I know that she taught my father a lot, uh, who was Irish and from Sussex, New Brunswick. His family originally from Ireland. And uh, he was a military man, so for him, I know the work and how he found out about that was being in the military and going up north. Uh, For us, it was just, I think, a joy. Uh, Those are the days that I think for myself, I know for myself, um, that grounding that we had there and the learning that we had there um, carried on throughout my life. Were you um, going out on the trap line and learning just a lot of the skills that your parents yeah. were using? Yeah, that was one of my favorite things. I would be like, can I go today, Dad? <laughs> uh, on his skidoo, he had one of the old double track skidoos and the sled would be on the back. Um, and some days he'd say yes and some days he'd say no. And as a kid, you don't know the rationale of why, but he knew in the hardness of the land that it was okay to take a little one with you. Uh, and other days it was not okay, right, depending on what was happening out there Uh, but the work always came home as well right because then my mom would have to dress the animals do all the work of the fur there was the scraping the cleaning prepping it so it would go to sale Um, that part of it that as an adult now you look at it and go wow like that what they did for us as children was just a marvel um, as a child, when you're there, it was just what you did daily. Just what you knew. Yeah. And for us, the important thing was being able to play outside and um, the differentness in the land. Uh, we lived with the animals. Um, we had a dog by the name of Duchess. That was my dad's baby, we used to always call her, because uh, she was a border collie that herded us all the time. And if one of us wandered off too far, she would let dad know. <laughs> Um, but there was a certain signal we had if there was a bear that was too close. Uh, we had um, a pack of wolves. My mom actually did a study for Alaska Magazine in 1972, I think it was published, uh, because at that time the wolf kill was going on, and we were right in the thick of it having to learn about it, and my mom was opposed to it. It was like a call of wolves. Mm-hmm. Was it? Okay. Yeah, and my mom was very opposed to it. And so she wrote an article for Alaska Magazine and showed a study. And we used to have this den of wolves that my older sister, Carol, used to get in trouble for going up to play with the pups because they have, they're a family unit. And in the day, the alpha and the beta would go out, and it was usually the young aunties that were left behind to look after the pups. And they're usually young. Um, and my sister, they, it was almost like we were part of the pack. She could go up there and play with them, but it didn't make my dad very happy. It wasn't uncommon there that the wolves would come down sometimes and just sit by the pumps. Um, my mom had a very deep respect of the land and the animals that you work with them. Uh, I don't think there was ever a fear. There was more of a fear um, for our own animals. Um, we had a couple of dogs that were always there, but we knew that that was food for them as well if we didn't make sure that they were safe in that. So mm-hmm. that's why we called Duchess my dad's baby. And then we had a husky that was named Duke. Uh, they were an alarm, but you also had to make sure that, you know, in the evening or at night, they weren't going to get taken by the animals that they were. And what did you learn about, um, like, bears and bear safety as a kid? Hmm. As a child? Uh we always, my dad could was a very proficient whistler, 
and he would whistle and we knew which one it was that we would have to come in because he would see something up on the mountain and uh, we learned to respect them you, you very much respect them and know uh, what we usually saw there were grizzlies we did not very rarely did we see a black bear it was usually grizzlies um, it was to respect them uh, wolverines were very common in the yard uh, there was one time when we were playing a game uh, and my dad was like, what are those kids doing? You used to get the fuel barrels would come in and they'd all be standing on end. And when you put a whole bunch of round barrels together, you get this nifty little triangle hole. And we were being kids, right? And my dad's watching us and we're poking these sticks in this hole while there was a young wolverine that had fallen in there. Wow. And they're very voracious creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were poking it with sticks. So my dad was very upset with us. <laughs> you could have uh, learned a harder lesson. There. Yeah, <laughs> we could have learned a much harder lesson in that one. But um, it, it's just a different relationship that you have, right? Where you, you, you're not... There, we really didn't have a fear. We had an understanding mm-hmm. and a respect of each other. Uh, even the ones that would come in seasonally, there's owls that come through and there's certain times of the year, I remember their chicks would be falling out of the nest as they're learning how to fly. You, we had to learn that, which was really hard for some of my older sisters. Uh, they always wanted to pick them up and have these wonderful things, but you can't do that. Otherwise, they would be abandoned by the mother. So you learn that as you're going um, ptarmigan was one of our proficient foods. Uh, we didn't really have some of, I call them Western foods now, but we didn't have like chicken and beef and pork. We had moose and caribou and ptarmigan. That's what we all started out with, right? And fish. Um, yeah, whitefish was a, a big staple for us, actually. When you moved into uh, Dawson as a family, did you maintain a lot of your connections with the land? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We we grew up and being on the Dempster, we would be able to come into town. Sometimes we came in in the winter and stayed for like a month or two. That gave my sisters the opportunity to go to school as well. Sometimes it was longer. It was depending on how, what state the road was in that year. As the road became more established when it was being built, we stayed out there longer until the point that it was built up to Eagle Plains. And then the the reasonable gas stop was then Eagle Plains. The larger infrastructure went up there and my dad said, okay, and we went and moved permanently back into Dawson. Um, And I think then was when he became one of the partners in the DCW store. Uh, he was the C. <laughs> um, Is that a, 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 like a general goods store? Yeah, it used to be the grocery store in Dawson. And it was three three gentlemen that knew each other. And they took the initials of their names, DCW, and that was the name of the store. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was home for us. He used to, where he met my mom was, it's now the Midnight Sun, but it used to be called the Penguin. Um, my mom was a barmaid for him because he owned the penguin. Uh, my dad was a, um, a military. He went through World War II, and he tried very hard to be as far away from people as possible. Like after, after he the got war. back, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he liked the remoteness. He liked the quietness. Uh, he loved to learn. He was a radio operator, so he liked to tinker with radio. And uh, him and my mom met there, and then we all came about. So Time for a short break. We'll be right back. Do you have a Yukon North of Ordinary hoodie yet? What about a t-shirt? A toque? 
mug. Check out the full product line at the retail store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. Limited products can also be ordered from northofordinary.com. And while you're there, don't forget to pick up a magazine subscription. And now, back to the episode. Where did your mom grow up? My mom was born and raised in Dawson. She was actually from Moosehide. She was a former chief of our First Nation. Um, As I grew older, um, I watched her as a champion um, for our citizens. Um, She started out in Moosehide, learning uh, in a school in Moosehide and only learning our language. Um, And then at 13 years old was put into school in Dawson. Um, but because she didn't speak uh, fluent English as it was at 13, they put her into grade one. Uh, and it's, I remember her telling me that in her leadership, she was such a leader. Um, she said, I didn't let that get me down. She said, nobody was going to set my path for me. I just showed them that I can learn this. And she said, and I learned everything I had to know in that one year. And it was in the next year they put her in the proper grade. So... I thought that was pretty amazing, you know, at that time when you think about when that was way back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, that's quite a remarkable feat. Was that a residential school in Dawson? Uh, no, it was a, what did they call it? The, I think it was called St. Paul's at the time. I'd have to look back in the book that was the write-up with that. Um, but it was not a residential school at the time. Uh, my grandmother protected the girls from that. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen for my uncles. Um, they all had to attend Chutla. Uh, but the, I think that was the wisdom of my grandmother, sneaking the girls away and hiding them. And I asked her about that, you know, when I was a teenager. Uh, it was probably one of the brave times because then they were still not talking about it. Um, and my grandmother said that it would be, or she did that because she knew she would be saving the family. And I had to really contemplate that later. Um, I didn't quite understand because I was like, but you didn't, Grandma, because the uncles went. And we were just beginning to understand the impacts as children of uh, what our parents went through for a residential school. And she understood that if she put the girls away, she would be saving the family. Just smart. Mm -hmm. You learned at a fairly young age that you uh, wanted to be an educator. Mm. How did that come about? That was my grandmother again. (laughs) Uh, My grandmother said when I was four that I would be a teacher. Uh, I learned to read really young, and it was my older sister, Carol. Uh, I can remember the day we were on the Dempster. Uh, We used to have our two trailers. One was the cafe, and then there was our kind of like community Um, area where there was a huge boot room and we had a bit of a living room space in there and then there was our sleeping trailer and we had my dad the military influence we had the old army bunks that he had collected those metal ones and I was sitting on the top bunk with my sister Carol who was uh, we had one of the well now I know what they're called but it was C. Dick Run, C. Jane Run, (laughs) C. Spot Run Uh, I remember looking at my older sister and going "I, I can read and understanding and it was a very pivotal moment like it's one of those ones that you go oh, I, that's pretty cool that I can remember that because mm-hmm. I was only four uh, but my grandmother said then when I was four that I would be a teacher 
when I got old enough to go to school, I was like, no, I'm not. I'm going to be a doctor because I was very interested in uh, human kinetics and biology. Um, I loved animals. Um, I actually went into school first and got my degree in science um, because biology was my thing. I loved learning about animals. I loved being around animals, um, the inner parts of them, everything. Um, it, it, it intrigued me even on the trap line when mom would pull apart a grouse or a ptarmigan or um, learning how to skin a rabbit, all of those things. It intrigued me, learning all the inner parts, the muscles, and what do you do with this, and um, knowing that from sewing as well, like the sinew came from the tendons, and it was this part, was really interesting to me. And when I finished my first degree, I had three kids. Uh, I was young, I was 23, and I took a job with the new on Vancouver Island with the New Chelmouth. And I could teach uh, with a, just a Bachelor of Arts uh, or the science that I had. And um, I took it because it was my husband was a fisherman and I was like, okay. And I, my kids could go to the daycare across the street. So I was like, this is perfect, right? Uh, it was three weeks in that I went, okay, I understand, Grandma. <laughs> I was supposed to be a teacher. So, and that set the career there so off. From there, I continued on and did my Bachelor of Education and stayed in education since then. I understand it was a bit of a, a change, like when you first moved down to BC, mm -hmm. just going from Dawson to a big city. I didn't even know how to get on a bus. <laughs> uh, I, I remember, you know, going, wow, this is a big city. My grandfather um, said, the, mount the mountains you'll see are north. And that really helped me. I honestly did not know how to get on a bus, how to navigate all those, and had to figure that out. Uh, it was different. And it was when I was in university, I had told this story before. I was going along and going, why was? Because there was, you know, in my sibling, all of my siblings, some of them were really struggling. They didn't finish school. I completed grade 12, but I always say I timed out um, because my final transcript, I did my 12 years at school. Uh, my final transcript, I had two credits that I was short. So it said, the student does not meet the requirements. Or, I still have that, actually, a copy of it. Um, and so I had to go to open school as soon, it was Open Learning BC, I think it was called, to get those two credits. And I d when I was doing that, I was always wondering, like, how come I was the only one who made it to grade 12 in my family? Like, why? Why didn't my brothers carry on in it? Because uh, like some of them left school in grade seven. Uh, some of my sisters left in grade 10. Um, and how come they didn't stick it out? Because I just, it was something that always just kind of hung in the back of my mind. And it was one day when I was at university, I was doing my Bachelor of Education and I was doing it at um, what's now known as VIU. It was Malaspina University College. I was watching these young students and they were feeding these rabbits there was all these loose rabbits on the campus of people who had let them go they were trying to feed them these little carrots and that and I just thought wow that's so funny right like because in myself I laughed I was walking along and then all of a sudden I stopped and I went holy cow because they were looking at those rabbits as if they were like a pet or something that they could you know like I would do with my dog I guess uh, but I looked at my dog as it's a work animal as well um I looked at that rabbit as, that one didn't have a very good 
pelt. <laughs> but there were some other ones. And I went, I know how to skin that rabbit. And I know what parts of it I could eat and uh, what I would do with all of the parts of it. Um, and what parts would make the mitts and what parts wouldn't do and all of that. And I thought, you have a really different perspective, Melanie. And then I just from there went, I could use that, right? It's an advantage for me. Combining yeah. those two different worlds, yeah. world view, views. Mm-hmm. So that was what really connected me to know that I was at a little bit of an adva- advantage sometimes and a disadvantage sometimes. But I knew that I could develop the skill to kind of w- walk between those two worlds and figure it out. And the best way to do it was to just start asking questions. You shared a quote with me earlier from uh, James Allen, who was a land claims negotiator, I think, mm-hmm. for Champion and Ajax, about mm-hmm. how kids need to have one hand on the keyboard and one foot on the land, yeah. which I guess kind of sums that idea yeah, up. Yeah, it does. I think about that all the time for our kids in the system now. Um, it's that duality that builds a strength when you have that. And when we talk, when I hear people... Uh, in education talk about, wow, we have to bring truth and reconciliation. I often go, but do you truly understand what that means? Because the first step to it is you have to honor that other person's worldview and you have to understand it. And by honoring it, you give it the value that they are as an equal, right? Because in that, it's a decolonizing process that that Western European model has to go through. And when you give value to the other worldview and understand it, then you really recognize that there's great strength there in having both, being able to navigate that. Um, Because I do see some of my own relatives in that that cannot navigate outside of our own worldview. Uh, I know one of my cousins is completely comfortable on the land and completely uncomfortable if he comes into town and does stuff he has no um he doesn't really want to do that where he is comfortable is on the land and i see some who don't give value to that they look at it and they think that's less than and it's not it's in my eyes it's greater than because i do have that ability to look at things a little bit differently um, I think about when James said that to me, and I went, yeah, if I was stuck in the bush, I'd really want to put my back up against you, not up against someone from, you know, some minister's office or something, right, in a government position. It would be you I'd want to say, can you help? Um, I want to talk more about uh, sort of education in a moment, but I want to come back to something else you told me earlier, which which is um, that students need to fail and learn how to overcome failure. Mm-hmm. Those are my best lessons, right? I've always, and I think it came from my grandmother teaching me, uh, I bugged my mom at six years old. My grandmother was teaching sewing classes on the top floor, and back then it used to be called Dawson Indian Band before we reclaimed Toronto Kachin. And in the First Nations Hall on the top floor, my grandmother was teaching the sewing lessons, and that now in Dawson is the old hand fisheries building. And I wanted to go and participate in those. And my mom said, no, you're too young. She wouldn't let me. And I persistently uh, kept pecking away at my mom and said, can I go, please? I want to learn. And please, I could do this. I'll be really good. I gave her all the reasons. And finally, she went to my grandmother. And my grandmother said, look, just let her come. If she's a problem, I'll send her back home. Uh, That was it. I 
totally, uh, I haven't stopped sewing since I did that with my grandmother. Um, it's when I was learning from her, I remember my very first piece that I made was this little orange necklace. It had a little flower, orange flower on it. And I made a multiple of mistakes in it. And my grandmother would make me take it apart and fix it. And I started to get really frustrated and she would say, no, put it down. You, it cannot have bad energy. You need to put it down. Those were all lessons that she was teaching me. And the greatest one in it was that they were all good mistakes. And that's how she always phrased it to me. That was a good mistake. Let's pick it apart and fix it. Sometimes my mom, who also taught me to sew, um, would say, leave it in there. It was meant to be, mm. right? Mm. That mistake was supposed to be there. If there was one wrong bead or something in there. Uh, my grandmother would, no, take it apart, fix it. Uh, I know in just those simple lessons I was learning that it wasn't bad to make a mistake. Uh, it was the failure that you could pick it apart, look at it, and go, okay, what would you do next to make it work, right? And it was the same. I utilized that going into school. There were lots of times that I had failures, uh, things that didn't work, um, university, uh, courses that I failed, a uh, couple times where I wanted to tuck my tail between my legs and come home. And uh, I thought of my grandmother, and I persistently moved on. And I know it was those lessons that helped me to do that. So my one of my things that I do always say now as an adult is a good mistake. Mm-hmm. Move on. Let's go. Uh, you mentioned uh, truth and reconciliation earlier. I guess what would you like to see in the Yukon for in terms of um, reconciliation in education for Yukon First Nations students? I fully understand truth and reconciliation means that we need to hear the truth for, first. And it's hard to hear that. Uh, we've seen that even in recently with the reclaiming and having our children come home uh, in the mass graves. I had the privilege of witnessing one of my uncle's discovery when he had to tell uh, about what happened to him at residential school. Um, so I, I fully understand the pain of truth. Um, I can't even say that I would fully understand uh, the challenges that my uncles went through and some of my elderly relatives at residential school. So we have to hear that piece. The reconciliation piece, I've had some people very much disagree with me, but I really feel that that is a decolonization process. And the only way to do a decolonization process is to let those that are colonized lead. They have the path of how that can happen. So in that reconciliation process, we have to let the First Nations show the way. And that's really tough for some governments because when you have First Nations trying to change policy, self-governing First Nations that are trying to uh, garner authority and control back to what their ways were, um, and having a government with policies, processes, and um, legislation in place that requires changing Um, It's very difficult. Those are big bureaucratical processes that have to move and they don't move fast. So I think true reconciliation in the Yukon would really occur uh, if it's the First Nations that are leading it, if it's the Indigenous people who are saying, okay, this is the way, and the governments who have created those barriers and those systemic challenges say, okay, uh, because it takes that. 
And that doesn't mean, you know, uh, I had one person say to me, so you just want government to step aside and let the First Nations run it. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about in that decolonization process is that the First Nations have to provide the roadmap of that, and then you have to work together to do it. That's what reconciling means. Yeah. Uh, any other parting words you'd like to share? We get names as First Nations. Some of them are nicknames. Uh, some of them are, you know, formal. We get gifted names. Uh, for us at Trondra Kitchen, it's, it's something that happens in your life, whether it be a funny event or just something that kind of carried along, that you get a name. And all of my siblings were getting these really cool names, like my sister's Click. Um, and then my bro- one of my brothers, he had a Nitsu, which is a, um, a little old man, right? And they were all cool. And I got Tchikur, which was, stands for egg. <laughs> and I got called eggs all the time when I was little. And my grandma used to tease me because... Uh, she gave me that name, be, uh, one, because I was always running around and risking things. And I had a lot of cuts, stitches, broken bones, trying different things, stuff like that, right? So she said I was always cracking my shell. Uh, but she also recognized in, in me that, um, and it was my uncle who told me this later, uh, that and everything starts with an egg, right? A seed. Uh, everything begins with an egg, and uh, I was set out to start something. So that's kind of how I look at it. Thanks so much for joining me for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Me too. Merci. Merci. That's it for this episode of Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. Please share this episode and leave us a review. It really helps. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print magazine by going to northofordinary.com. While you're there, check out Yukon North of Ordinary merchandise. For a full product line, visit the Bricks and Mortar store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. There's a great selection of hats, clothing, stickers, and more. Do you have something to say about this episode? We'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media at North of Ordinary. You can also contact me, Karen McCall, with feedback or story ideas. My email is editor at northofordinary.com. Thanks to the whole team at North of Ordinary Media. Our podcast artwork is by art director Manu Kegenhoff. Our music is by Head Candy and tribeofnoise.com. Thanks for listening. We have another episode coming out next week. I hope you listen in. Thank you.